0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal
1: health and vitality. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Least of These. I'm your host, Leah D., and I'm still on vacation. This week, I'm bringing you another one of my favorite true crime podcasts. My girl, Mama Margot of Military Murder, will be filling in. If you haven't heard about Military Murder, where have you been? Military Murder is a true crime podcast that focuses on murders committed by military members, veterans, and sometimes their family members. Hosted by the one and only Margot, a military veteran and one of the most kind human beings I know. When I reached out to Margot, I already had an episode in mind that I wanted to share. It's the story of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. A case you might be familiar with. But nobody tells it quite like Margot. As usual, she dug deep and brought all the details. It was Margot's coverage of this case that originally got me hooked on military murder. So without further ado, let's join Mama Margot as she brings us the case of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall.
0: content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning This episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Welcome back to Crime Army. I am your host Margot and this is military murder a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't you worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today, I am bringing you a case that is a heck of a doozy. This is actually the very first case one of my listeners recommended back in 2019. I remember seeing the recommendation and looking up the case and thinking, oh, woof, that's a beast. And here we are, almost two years later, and I'm giving the people what they want. This case is out of New Orleans and involves an Army veteran. I did want to give a trigger warning, or a few trigger warnings. This case involves some heavy-hitting topics, such as war, service members being killed in action, domestic violence, decapitation, dismemberment, and suicide. This episode is not for the faint of heart. You have been warned. Join me today as I discuss the case of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. Now, let's dig in. Shout out to one of our very own listeners and fan club member, Myrtle, for digging into this case for us. She not only did hours of research, but she also wrote this episode. Thank you so much, girl. The sources for this episode include a book by Ethan Brown titled Shake the Devil Off, an episode of Handsome Devils titled Hurricane Love, an episode of Final Witness titled Graveyard Love, and websites Britannica, WGNO News, the Santa Monica Times, Crime Museum, National Geographic, and a U.S. Army publication titled Operation Joint Guardian, the U.S. Army in Kosovo. On the evening of October 17, 2006, the New Orleans Police Department received a call from an employee at the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel that a body had been found on the roof of their parking garage. When the police arrived, they found the bloodied and broken body of a man. In an attempt to identify him, they searched his pockets. In the front pocket of his jeans, they discovered a plastic baggie containing a set of dog tags and a tightly folded handwritten note that read, for police only. And this was written on the outside of it. The dog tags bore the name Zachary M. Bowen. The contents of the note included the following words, quote, This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove and in the fridge along with full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself. The keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call Leo Watermeyer to let you in. Signed, Zach Bowen. End quote. Zachary Morgan Bowen was born on May 15th, 1978 to parents Jack and Lori Bowen. When Zach's parents met in California, Jack was a bellhop at a hotel in Redondo Beach, and Lori was an active protester of the Vietnam War. They were married in 1972, and they welcomed a son they named Jed in 1975. Zach was born in Bakersfield three years later. Jack and Lori always had a dream of living a nomadic life on the road, so they purchased a Volkswagen van, they packed up the boys, and they hit the road. For a while, they drifted from town to town in California. But when a friend asked them to come to Idaho to help him renovate a property, they headed that way for the summer. While they were there, Jack decided that he wanted to be a speech and drama teacher. And by summer's end, they moved back to California where Jack attended college in Chico and eventually received his degree in drama. But the dream of becoming a drama teacher faded when Jack clashed with his professors in a teaching program. He then dropped out and moved the family back to Bakersfield. He took a job with an oil company, but was never happy and was absent from the family, leaving Lori to shoulder the brunt of the responsibility of raising the two boys. Food was often scarce in the house. Lori put her foot down and insisted that Jack find a real job, a new job. And well, he did, except not in the line of work she wanted for her husband. He started working as a bartender in strip clubs in Bakersfield. Now, that didn't last long, and Lori wanted Jack to get back into a more stable line of work. And, well, eventually, he left the job to work in oil in 1980. He moved up quickly up the ranks and started making $70,000 a year. Now, that's a high salary for the time, and the family enjoyed living comfortably for a change. It was very different from what they had been living. Just as an aside, $70,000 with inflation today would be equivalent of making $238,000 a year. At this point in their life, it was an idyllic life where they didn't want for anything. The family was happy, and they were able to do things they couldn't do before. They were able to take extended vacations, and during one trip in 1985 to Winby Island, Washington, they fell in love with the area and decided to move there. It wasn't a good change for them, though. Lori and Jack got into fights because Jack would stay out until the wee hours of the night going to the bars with his friends. Meanwhile, Lori was home on her own with Jed and Zach, like she had been when they first moved to Bakersfield. Jack and Lori tried to stay together, but eventually divorced in 1990. That same year, Lori moved the boys, now 15 and 12, to Santa Maria, California, and Jack stayed in Washington State. Now, it's hard enough being a teenager and a preteen, you know, you have to think like pimples and puberty. And so you can only imagine how difficult it was for the boys emotionally going through a big move from Washington to California. But just tack on the divorce and being a teenager. And it's just a hell of time. Zach was awkward and bashful, but goofy all at the same time, according to his mom. And Jed was quiet, thoughtful and had developed a dry sense of humor. Now, I want to talk about Zach a little bit. His awkwardness had a lot to do with his size. Within a few years, he had shot up to a height of 6 feet 10 inches tall, and he wore a size 17 shoe. Lori said he had a hard time walking and was constantly apologizing for himself. He wasn't just apologizing for his size because he was so big and clumsy. Zach would also say that he was sorry for the mistakes he had made. Which is odd because by this point in his life, the worst he had done was make maybe substandard grades. Certainly not the worst offense a 17-year-old could make. In fact, he had worked extra hard the beginning of his senior year and he had gotten his grades up. He wasn't unpopular, quite the opposite, in fact. In November of 1995, he was nominated to be in the homecoming court and participated in all of the silly events that were required for him to make a run to be crowned. Zach was obsessed with winning the title, but really didn't fit in the mold of what you would think the typical homecoming king looked like. He had this long, sandy blonde hair. He played the drums along with his favorite bands at home. He was a rocker kid and didn't have any plans for the future other than becoming a musician. The other candidates, they all had impeccable grades and college plans. It just made Zach feel like he couldn't compete with them. Well, his mom kind of knew what the writing on the wall was, and she tried to soften the impending blow of Zach not winning by being realistic about the expectations of him competing for the title. When the candidates gave their speeches, the other boys talked about school spirit supporting their great football team. And when it was Zach's turn to go he grabbed the mic and announced that he thought that the school should institute mandatory two-hour nap time. (laughs) Now, the joke was met with a half-hearted chuckle from some people in the crowd as his mom enthusiastically yelled out, "Woohoo, Go, Zach! Moms are just so cute. They're such a trip, and they will support you regardless. Well, Zach stood there looking like he knew that the joke was inappropriate for the event and that it most likely sealed his fate. And his homecoming partner, she wasn't any better. Herself giving kind of an awkward speech. Finally, the announcement was made. The 1995 homecoming king and queen are not Zach or the girl he had been paired with. He felt crushed. And to make it worse, he really felt out of place with what he chose to wear to homecoming. Get this. Zach was wearing black dress pants, a white shirt and a black cape the boy who was named King. On the other hand, he was wearing a traditional tuxedo, and it just cemented in the fact that Zach was an outsider and didn't really belong, or at least that's how he felt. While his grades had been decent leading up to homecoming, immediately following the loss, Zach's grades plummeted. And to make matters worse, Zach started talking about dropping out of high school and moving back to Washington to stay with his dad, Jack. Now, this is insane because he was just running for homecoming king, and now he wants to drop out. His mom was pretty upset because she had worked so hard to make a stable home for her and the boys. And their dad, he was more of like a buddy-buddy than a parental figure to her sons. But Zach had made up his mind. And in early 1996, he dropped out of high school just a few months shy of graduation. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do he moved back in with Jack in Washington state. But not long after Zach got to his dad's house, they packed it up and they hit the road again. They were a road tripping father and son. Lori was right. As soon as Zach moved in with Jack, they were just guy palling it all around town. Jack plotted out a route that took them to places known for their party lifestyles like Savannah, Georgia and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The last stop was scheduled to be in New Orleans, Louisiana, where they planned to stay for an extended period of time before heading back to Washington. Jack figured he could support him and his son by bartending like he had done when he dropped out of college. When they arrived in New Orleans, their party lifestyle came to a screeching halt. It wasn't at all like Savannah and Fort Lauderdale had been. They moved into a rundown apartment, and Zach enrolled himself in high school. Zach told his mom that he was the only white kid there, and he felt very much like an outsider. And his second attempt at finishing his senior year didn't last long, and he soon dropped out again. During the summer of 96, Zach got a job selling go-cups for the bar on Bourbon Street. And on and off the job, Zach stuck out like a sore thumb. He was six foot ten, long blonde hair, and he had this really handsome face. Even though he was only 18, he got tons of attention from both women and gay men passing by, and he sold a ton of drinks for the bars. He called out to anybody who would listen to him while they were out on the street, trying to sell these go cups. Now, these go cups he was selling, they allow people in New Orleans to keep the party going while they're outside walking between bars. New Orleans has a very active nightlife, if you didn't already know that, and the party goes until dawn most nights. One of the women who noticed Zach was a 28-year-old stripper from Texas named Lana Shupak. Zach invited Lana and her friend to come into the bar and to sit down for a drink. Lana was in town with a dancer friend for a short vacation. So they came in, they sat down, they did a few shots. And Lana's friend declared that Zach was going to be her boy toy for the weekend. But she soon realized that Lana and Zach had a strong attraction to each other. And she basically stepped off. She stepped aside. Zach and Lana talked for hours. And three days later, they went on their very first date. The vacation was over a few days later and Lana went back to Dallas. But Zach couldn't get her out of his head. He called her relentlessly, asking her to come back to New Orleans. And, well, she finally gave in, and by the end of the summer, she moved to a little apartment in NOLA, located above a strip club. Lana was an extremely successful dancer, and she often moved from city to city where big events were being held. She was a businesswoman, and she chased the money. So packing up and abruptly moving to New Orleans wasn't out of character for her. By the fall of 96, Zach and Lana were inseparable. But would you believe that Lana didn't know how old Zach was until they were dating for a few months? What the what? How did she not know? You know, she just figured since he was bartending that he at least had to be over 21. But she was wrong. And when she found out that he was still a teenager, she began to distance herself from him. But in January of 97, before she could completely shut him out, boom, she found out she was pregnant. Oh, no. Lana was shocked and she wasn't quite sure what to do. And finally, in March, she broke the news to Zach. He was just as equally shocked. He wasn't even 19 yet. He was still living with his dad and he was going to be a father. Even though they were roommates, Zach didn't bother even asking his dad for advice. Instead, he wrote a letter to his mom, pouring his heart out, explaining that he didn't want to be the baby's father. He wished that Lana had found someone older to have a baby with. But despite his fears and regrets, he was going to stick around and support Lana through the pregnancy and the first few months of the baby's life. After that, he was out skis. Well, Lori, his mom, she called Zach and told him he had two choices. He could walk away now and never know what happens with the baby, or he could stay and be a father. None of this half-z's crap. Zach finally made his decision. He was going to be a father. Lana didn't make it easy on him, though. She didn't think Zach was really father material. So she basically ghosted him. She didn't tell him when she went into labor or that she even had the baby, which was a son. Zach didn't even know that his son was born until a few weeks later when a friend told him. But as soon as Zach held his son Jackson, everything changed. Lana remembers that day and she said that she could see the change in Zach. He carried Jackson everywhere and even took him to meet everyone at work, which remember, he worked at a bar. By the time baby Jackson was six months old, Lana and Zach were officially back together. Zach was serious about his new role as a parent and a partner. He even took on a second job at another bar in a hotel, and he felt pretty proud when he qualified to receive health care benefits. He felt like, like a grown-up and a good provider for his little family. But, you know, working at the bars meant late nights and being around alcohol and sometimes drugs. One night, Zach was standing with a friend after getting off work, And the friend had just taken his first hit from an improvised marijuana bong made from a Coke can. Just then, a cop went by and saw the two of them outside. Zach and his friend were both taken into custody. And Zach was charged with possession of drug paraphernalia. The charges against Zach were eventually dropped. But that moment was a big wake-up call for Zach. He couldn't be that irresponsible again. So he reached out to his brother Jed and asked for advice. Jed had been in the army for almost four years at this point, and he was straightforward with his brother. He told Zach that if he continued down the path he was heading, he'd have nothing left. He wasn't building towards a life with meaning. He was a high school dropout who worked in various bars, and he had a girlfriend and a baby to care for. Jed suggested that Zach consider the army. Jed said this completely seriously, but he didn't think his brother would actually consider it. But to his surprise, Zach said he'd think about it. Zach loved being around little Jackson and really felt like he was in love with Lana. So he wanted to make it official. So one day, he very unromantically asked her to marry him by asking if she wanted health insurance. (laughs) Now, if they got married, then she'd qualify. Now, Lana wasn't completely put off by his lack of romance. She really liked how practical Zach was about everything, so she said yes. And they settled on a date, October 10th, 1998. That would be their wedding date. At this point, it was game on. Zach worked even harder as a bartender. He even won a bartending competition for making the most creative drink. The prize? A trip to Belize. Wow, this would be a perfect honeymoon, they thought. So they quick got married in the middle of Jackson Square. In the book, Shake the Devil Off, Lana recalls that there were more tourists around them taking pictures and recording the ceremony than their own actual guest. Zach was pretty emotional during the ceremony, and he broke down in tears at one point, which is so sweet, right? But there may have been something behind the extra emotion for him. You see, they had just found out they were having another baby. Now, that's a whole extra mouth to feed. Their daughter, Lily, was born the following year in June of 99. It was at this point, married with two kids, that Zach heard his brother's words echoing in his head, join the army, join the army, join the army. So he worked hard and he managed to get his GED. Two years later, in 2000, Zach made the decision to join the army he went down to the recruiter and started filling out all the paperwork. Now, many of my listeners are either current military members or veterans, and if you are, then you know that it's a ton of paperwork to join the military. Zach had to provide his educational records, birth certificates for himself, for his wife, for the kids, their marriage license, and embarrassingly, he had to disclose his brush with the law when he was charged with possession of drug paraphernalia. But even with this little snafu with the law, the army cleared him to enter the military. And on May 12, 2000, Zach signed up for eight years in the military. He shipped out to boot camp two weeks later. Lana was so proud of Zach's decision to join. It meant she didn't need to strip anymore and he wouldn't need to bartend. She wasn't worried about him going to war because at this point there wasn't a war, right? Zach felt like he was fulfilling a family tradition in joining the Army. Besides his brother, his maternal grandfather served in the Army back in World War II. Now, his mom photocopied all of her late father Milton's letters from his time in the military, and she mailed them to Zach while he was in boot camp, and this was really special for Zach. Zach even did his training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, where his own grandfather had also gone to boot camp. Following his training to become a military policeman, known as an MP, Zach was assigned to the 527th Military Police Company, which is part of the 709th Military Police Battalion in Gießen, Germany. He had requested to be stationed in Europe and was super excited to have gotten his dream assignment. The 709th had a long and honored history in Europe, having the distinction of being one of the units that landed in Normandy in 1944. Zach lived in the barracks at Geeson since Lana and the kids weren't authorized to be moved overseas yet. She had all this paperwork to fill out. While his days were pretty mundane working as a patrolman in and around the base, the nights were way more fun. You see, Zach turned it up in the barracks, making it into a nightclub with music and cocktails that made him pretty popular with his fellow soldiers. They had a makeshift band with a drum kit and guitars, and they would play gigs for everyone who lived in the barracks. Zak was popular everywhere, including making friends with a group of Geisen natives when he showed off his cocktail-making skills. He even spent Christmas and took a road trip to Paris for New Year's Eve with his German friends. Operation Joint Guardian had been going on for a year by the time Zak was finished with boot camp and his training. The United States had entered the war in Kosovo in 99, trying to ease the genocide that Serbian troops who were following the orders of Slobodan Milosevic were inflicting on ethnic Albanians. At the time U.S. forces deployed, over 800,000 ethnic Albanians had been forced out of Kosovo by the Serbians and up to 12,000 had been killed in some of the most horrific ethnic cleansing in modern times. Thousands of bodies were being uncovered in mass graves throughout the country. The goal of the Americans was to bring peace to the warring factions and to stop the ethnic cleansing. On January 10th, 2001, Zach and other soldiers from the 527th were deployed to Kosovo. Zach was assigned as a gunner riding in the Tourette of the American Humvees, and they were patrolling the city with other MPs outside of Camp Bonseal, where they were stationed or where they were based. When they first arrived, patrols were, you know, kind of like lighthearted. Zach was known to play air drums and lead the other soldiers in singing songs from the 80s like Tainted Love while they were out patrolling. The area had been pretty unsettled before the 527th arrived while it was still under French control, but it seemed to calm down once the Americans arrived in the area. The good humor and the quiet days, they didn't last. The 527th was given the ghastly job of excavating the mass graves of the ethnic Albanians where they had to remove and bag the bodies contained in the graves. Zack's platoon was also tasked with going face-to-face with some extremely violent Serbians. Their patrol vehicles were attacked with rocks and Molotov cocktails as they patrolled. Now, what in the world is a Molotov cocktail? I had to look that up because I had no clue. And so, according to Wikipedia, it's basically a gasoline bomb, a bottle bomb, also known as a poor man's grenade, a firebomb, but you get the point, right? So Zach's position as the gunner left the top half of his body exposed to the elements and thus extremely vulnerable. It's really a stressful position to have to ride in day after day. At one point, Zach had met a young Albanian girl and given her some candy. The next day, the soldiers found out that she had been killed by the Serbs. Her only offense was that she had talked to Americans. The little girl's death, it really deeply affected Zach. He thought of his own daughter, Lily, and it broke his heart that this had happened to her. His upbeat sing-alongs, they quickly faded away, and letters home indicated that his good morale was replaced by a really dark depression. While Zach was deployed, Lana was still in New Orleans taking care of Jackson and Lily. Zach's income as a young soldier wasn't cutting it to feed a family of four. So Lana started working long hours at the bars again. Lana could have easily joined Zach in Germany. All she had to do was fill out the dang military paperwork. And there we go again with the paperwork. It's it's a lot of paperwork. She just didn't have the energy to get it all done. And to top it off, she didn't even seem to have the energy to talk to Zach on the phone when he had the chance to call. Zach shared his frustrations with his mom, confiding in her that he was worried his kids were going to forget about him and also complaining about Lana saying that he joined the military to better all of their lives, and let's not forget the health insurance. So it was, basically, he joined the military for her. Zach finally returned to Geisen in May of 2001, and that month, he was also promoted to the rank of specialist. Even though he had only been in the Army for a year, he now had enough experience to train new soldiers who arrived in Geisen. One of the soldiers who Zach trained said that he was a great trainer. He never talked down to anyone he outranked. Zach was always patient and found a way to relate to everyone he encountered. Back in the barracks, Zach and his roommate turned their room into Party Central. Like I said, they had margarita nights, music blaring, and fellow soldiers hanging out all the time. Unfortunately, Zach started having some physical problems. You see, Zach wore a size 17 shoe, but the army didn't have boots that fit him well. This led to a severe case of hammer toe. According to Myrtle's research, the problem with Zach's toe was that it bent upwards instead of laying flat, and the condition was extremely painful. For this foot issue, Zach was given what the Army calls a soft shoe profile. Now, this means that he was allowed to wear tennis shoes while he was in uniform. And you might think, oh, good, that's really good for him. Now you can be more comfortable. But military people don't like to look different. Wearing tennis shoes with a combat uniform just looks odd and makes you stick out. And if you have ever served, you know full well that Zach's fellow soldiers probably made him the butt of every joke about wearing sneakers in uniform. But the jokes wouldn't last long since the Army was able to make a custom pair of boots just for Zach that actually fit. But sadly, as many a things, the relief came too late By then, the damage to his feet was so severe that he had to have surgery. After the surgery, he took his recovery time off to fly home to New Orleans to see Lana and the kids. And while reunions are supposed to be happy and Instagram worthy, Zach's reunion with Lana was anything but. Zach was mad at Lana for not getting the paperwork done to get her and the kids clearance to move to Germany. They argued, but ultimately Zach was like, I'm not leaving without you. Zach helped with the paperwork and by August, Lana, Jackson and Lily had moved to Germany and they were settled into a house on post with Zach. All was finally well in the world again. And guess what? Lana loved their time in Germany. Go figure. Lana and Zach would host parties and cookouts at their home and they had a large circle of friends on post. They spent a lot of time off post too hanging out at the bars around Geisen. Then, September 11th, 2001 happened, and they all watched in horror. Lana knew things would be different now, but Zack didn't seem too concerned at the time. Security at the base ramped up, vehicles were searched, including undercarriages and trunks, and sometimes the gates were shut down altogether. Zach's unit maintained their patrols, and other than the tightened security at the U.S. military installations, the rest of Europe was going on with business as usual. There weren't any imminent plans on deploying troops anyway, at least not yet. By the end of the summer of 2002, things had settled down. They were living the new post-9-11 normal. And Zach and Lana were taking trips to see different countries surrounding Germany. And they were sending lots of pictures back to Zach's mom, Lori. In the 527th, life continued on, including new people coming in. One new soldier who joined the team was a 19-year-old from Wisconsin named Rachel Boz Bosveld. She was always seen with a notebook in her hands. Inside it, she had drawings of her own beautiful tattoo designs. She also played string instruments like viola and violin before she joined the Army, and she would jam with Zach and the other guys in the band. While Zach stood out for his height, remember he was 6'10", Boz was barely 5 foot tall. She was super daring and she was known for challenging her fellow soldiers with doing crazy stunts. For example, jumping off the back of their armored vehicles into puddles. One time she tried to get the guys to do it with her, but no can do. When she jumped, she splashed down in a puddle that was so deep, she was in it to her waist. They all laughed about it, but they got yelled at by their sergeant. Whoops. (laughs) Now, there weren't many women in the unit, and the guys were pretty protective of Boz, so no one was really mad at her for getting them in trouble. Meanwhile, then-President George W. Bush was making a case for an invasion of Iraq to hunt for weapons of mass destruction. Plans were being drawn up, but the details were not known to many outside of the Pentagon. Despite the top-secret stamp that was placed on the plans, Rumors began to fly throughout the military of an upcoming invasion of Iraq. Lana was sure that Zach was going to be deployed, and they didn't have to wait long before rumors became a reality. One by one, the vehicles assigned to the 527th had been repainted desert tan over the dark green and brown camouflage colors that the soldiers were accustomed to. And by the end of 2002, the unit knew they were going to be shipping out soon. In January of 2003, they started rolling out to Kuwait on year-long orders. Of course, in typical military fashion, it was hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And the hurry up and wait game was real. The unit slept in a hangar in Germany for three days waiting for their flight. Then, unceremoniously, they were told to pick up their bags and they loaded onto a civilian 747. Now, the mood was light on board, and the soldiers enjoyed movies to help pass the time during the long flight into Kuwait City. Once the plane landed, the mood changed. Zach and the rest of the 527th were taken off the plane and immediately loaded onto buses with curtains on the windows. Troop movements between the airfield and Camp Doha, about 20 miles away, had to be shrouded in secrecy to protect the military members from any potential terrorist threats. Life on the base was pretty harsh. The winds blew constantly and can get up to 50 miles per hour. It causes the sand to whip around and it tears at your skin, your clothes, the tents, and it gets into everything. And patrols were even more boring in Kuwait than in Germany. The most excitement was when the water trucks came to base and the MPs rode with them to make sure the driver wasn't planting any bombs on base. But there were Scud missile attack trainings to keep the soldiers from getting too complacent. The PA system would bellow out, exercise, exercise, exercise. And when that happened, everyone on the base had to put on their gas mask, heavy chemical warfare suits and take cover. Thankfully, the average temperature is around 80 degrees Fahrenheit during the winter months here. But it's still stifling in the impermeable suits and the rubber masks trap your sweat inside. Imagine living every day in fear that a rocket was being aimed at you in those kinds of conditions. It made the soldiers hate Kuwait, and still does, and itch to get the show on the road and get going to their objective, Iraq. While most of the 527th were on board with invading Iraq and getting rid of the presumed weapons of mass destruction, there was a small group of soldiers self-named the Band of Rebels, including Zach and they felt that there were no chemical weapons. Even if there were, they felt the Iraqi army didn't have a reliable delivery system to make them a threat to anyone. The band of rebels felt that the American public was being lied to. They would have no issue with going in to remove a dictator from power, but they did have an issue with the reasons being given for the invasion. Since they had arrived in Kuwait, Zach hadn't called home to Lana and the kids. They had no idea what was going on over there. One day, Lana took the kids on a shopping trip to the Post Exchange, or the PX, which is a department store on base. Little Jackson put a pair of shoes in the cart without his mom noticing. Anyone who has served in the military knows that the PX has a better surveillance system than the NSA. A security guard stopped Lana at the exit of the store and asked her if she had paid for the shoes. Oh, Oh, no, she noticed she told him she didn't even know that the shoes were in the cart, but that she would pay for them right away. And the security guard wasn't having it. He was like, oh, no, no, no. And he quick took her back, charged her with shoplifting. Oh, well, can you imagine how mad, embarrassed and stressed out this situation was for Lana? Well, Lana said, listen, she told the security guard, call Zach's commander in Kuwait immediately. Lana was eventually let go and not charged. But Zach, he heard about what happened. That very same night, Zach finally called to talk to Lana and the kids, and she scolded him for not calling sooner. Zach was quiet on the phone, and Lana was worried that the war was already changing him before it even began. He promised to call and write her and the kids on a more regular basis. Meanwhile, back in California, Lori, which is Zach's mom, She hadn't talked to him in over a month, and she kept herself busy by putting together care packages for Zach and his fellow soldiers. She sent baby wipes and baby powder and snacks and sunscreen and chapstick, and she even snuck in a few Playboy magazines, which really made Zach popular with the fellows. Lori was even featured in a newspaper article in the Santa Maria Times. It had a big picture of Zach smiling, wearing his helmet and combat gear while in a Humvee. Lori felt the same way about the Iraq War as she had about Vietnam. Except this time, her baby boy was there, and it was tearing her heart out. On March 17, 2003, President Bush announced to the world that Saddam and his sons had 48 hours to leave Iraq, or face war. 90 minutes after the deadline hit on the 19th, 36 Tomahawk missiles were launched from the U.S. Navy ships in the Persian Gulf. And two 550 pound GBU 27 bombs were dropped from Air Force F 117s. Zach and the rest of the 527th learned they were going to be rolling out convoying from Kuwait into Iraq. They loaded up the armored security vehicles, the ASVs, and the Humvees with 50 caliber big guns and joined the 3rd Infantry Division to create a massive. 250-vehicle convoy that rumbled across the Kuwait-Iraq border on March twentieth, two 2003. Their destination? Baghdad. One of Zach's close friends was on the convoy with him. That day, Rachel Boz Bosveld, the tiny private that jammed with him in the band back in Geisen, she wrote in her diary, quote, War as we know it starts today. I hope it's a short one, end quote. The 527th didn't have to wait long to encounter some action when they came across a lone dump truck in the middle of the desert. That was strange enough being out there on its own, but the contents of the dump truck were even stranger. It was full of bales of hay and the carcasses of dead goats. What the, what, ew! The troops spent the better part of 12 hours in the intense Iraq heat, carefully unloading all of the bales and the dead goats off of the truck. Well, what do you know? Underneath all that crap, they discovered nine rocket-propelled grenade launchers, or also known as RPGs, and a bunch of Russian-made automatic machine guns. Well, in another strange instance, a herd of camels came running into the road And caused the convoy to stop to avoid crashing into them. It was a diversion because they were suddenly hit by small arms fire that didn't seem to come from any particular direction. It came from all directions. There was a steady ping, 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 ping that hit the vehicles as they lumbered along. It was apparent that they were going to have to be on their toes. The vehicles that the 527th deployed in, they weren't up armored like the ASVs and the Humvees are today. They actually had to use some GI ingenuity and they had to rig up pieces of sheet metal and install bulletproof glass to give them more protection from all of the small arms fire they were taking. They called it hillbilly armor. (laughs) Oh, you got to love you some soldiers. The soldiers themselves didn't have adequate body armor they were missing pieces of potentially life-saving protection, and that really pisses me off. Now, they were not prepared with enough drinking water, and they had to make it on one water bottle per day. Now, that is absolutely insane considering how hot it is there. Not surprising, their morale was pretty low. On March 24th, the convoy arrived at Talil Air Base. They expected some resistance, but what they didn't expect is that the gear would start falling off their vehicles. The Humvee that Zach was riding in lost some tents off the back of it, and they had to do a no-kidding U-turn to go back to pick the tents back up. They didn't even notice the missing tents right away, so they had to backtrack several miles to find them. Not only did they have to spend extra time on the dangerous roads again, when they got back to the camp, Zach and other soldiers had to go back out into the city to repost road signs that insurgents had switched around trying to make the Americans go the wrong way. During this trip, they saw an abandoned convoy of Humvees and trucks outside of town. They looked like they had been ambushed. They actually had been. The vehicles were from the 507th Maintenance Company. They had been attacked after going the wrong way. From that abandoned convoy, 11 soldiers were killed and five were taken captive. One of the five captives would make headlines across the world when she was rescued. Her name was Private First Class Jessica Lynch. After seeing the way the 507th convoy had been destroyed, the members of the 527th were on high alert. Their first major fight would take place outside the airfield at Talil, where they were met with resistance from the Iraqi army that was embedded there. They were backed up by artillery and airstrikes from other U.S. units, and the roads around the base were pockmarked from the impact of the shells, missiles, and bombs the Americans shot at and dropped on the insurgents. There were charred bodies of Iraqis all over the place, too. It was war, and the soldiers were getting a full dose of it. During a patrol, Zach and another soldier passed by a pickup truck containing two burned bodies. Zach looked at the other soldier and said sarcastically, quote, mmm, extra crispy, end quote. Now, this sounds so cold, and it is. But in the book, Shake the Devil Off, a fellow 527th soldier said that war changes you and you have to process the horrors in your own way. Zach's way was with a bit of twisted humor. And if you follow any veteran pages on social media, You get the gist of this twisted humor. Not long after they arrived, the Iraqi battalions stationed in Talil surrendered and the 527th now had to set up a POW camp. They also had to dig graves for the dead, which was a hard task physically and emotionally for the soldiers. They soon moved on and arrived in Baghdad a week after the capital fell. The 527th joined other American and coalition forces setting up police stations and training Iraqi police officers. The soldiers were housed in a palace that used to be the home of one of the vice presidents of Iraq. After weeks and weeks on the road in a convoy, they finally had showers, toilets, electricity, And the best part was a room with a large screen TV where they could watch DVDs. Now, do any of my veteran listeners who deployed remember all the bootleg DVDs that there were? Those were a hoot. Well, it definitely helped bring their morale up a bit. They moved a couple of couches outside behind the palace to make a smoking pit. And like in Germany, Zach would bring out his guitar to play for the soldiers. They called their hangout area the back porch. While the soldiers were out working with the Iraqi police in the city, Zach had to stay back at the palace and work in the operations center. You see, his foot surgery was not immediately successful. He was in constant pain and could barely walk. There was no way that he could be out doing patrols in the city. Zach tried to find anything and everything he could do to keep himself busy, but he had to keep off his feet. He briefed the patrols as they went out every single day, and he worked 14 to 18 hour days in the operations center. He even earned a driver's and mechanics badge during the time because he drove the lieutenants to the areas where the 527 soldiers were conducting training, and he was able to fix the vehicles when they needed maintenance. Zach felt embarrassed that he couldn't be in the field with his fellow MPs and referred to himself as a Bob, a back office bitch. All right, sorry, that was too funny because I I've never heard that before. By July, Zach was promoted from specialist to sergeant. The promotion was a wonderful thing to happen, but was dampened by the news that Lana was extremely sick back in Germany. She was fighting a severe case of hepatitis C. The treatment was brutal and it left her sick with a fever, chills, joint aches, hair loss, and she was horribly sick and nauseous all the freaking time. She could barely function and she had two young kids to take care of. She needed Zach to come back to Germany to take care of her and the kids. And the army gave him a few days of leave to go home and he rushed back to Germany. Lana remembers the time while he was home being such a relief for her and being entirely too short. Almost as soon as Zach returned to Iraq, Lana's doctors determined that her disease wasn't progressing the way they had hoped. Things were dire and her life was in danger if they didn't proceed right away. They needed to start a treatment that was going to cause her to be more sick and weak than she had ever been, and there was a very real possibility she could die. Unfortunately, Zach's unit wouldn't allow him to take leave again since he had just been home. Lana even did a Red Cross message trying desperately to get Zach back to Germany with her. When the Army denied Zach's request and denied Lana's Red Cross message, It made him hate the army and resent being in Iraq. He and the group of soldiers that had banded together in Kuwait against the war, they still felt the same. But now, Zach's feelings were stronger than ever about it. He had joined the army to be able to provide for his family, and if the army wasn't going to let him be with them when they needed him most, then he was going to be done with the army. Through the summer months in Baghdad, the 527th continued training the Iraqi police forces and patrolling the streets around Abu Ghraib. Zach was still pulling 18-hour shifts in the operations center, and the pain in his feet grew worse and worse as the days went on. And at the end of August, the 527th switched to night patrols. Since Baghdad didn't have the infrastructure yet to have any power, the streetlights didn't work at night. So the soldiers worked in total darkness. Attacks against the Americans increased, including being fired at with small arms and RPGs. One night, they were attacked while on patrol. An Iraqi policeman was killed and one of the soldiers were severely injured. He was the first in their unit to have to be medevaced to the military's trauma center in Landstuhl, Germany. Zach's friend Boz started obsessing that she wasn't going to make it home alive and she sent letters home to her mom, begging her to pray for all of them. On September 12th, Boz was on patrol in a Humvee when it was hit by an RPG. It hit the Humvee directly and exploded the fuel line, catching the entire vehicle on fire. Boz was trapped inside in the back seat briefly, but thankfully was able to shove the door open and escape. She, her team lead, and the gunner were taken to the medics to be checked over. Thankfully, they only had minor injuries. Over the months they had been in Baghdad, Zach had befriended a young Iraqi boy whose family had a shop across the street from one of the Iraqi police stations. He was teaching the boy how to speak English, and in exchange, the boy would bring Zach cans of soda and bags of ice. He saw his young Iraqi friend almost every day when he would drive the lieutenant to the police station. One day, however, in September, The shop was bombed by insurgents and the entire family was killed, including the boy. This information absolutely crushed Zach. October came and with it the Muslim holiday of Ramadan. The 527th worried that during the month there would be an increase in attacks. They were right. Iraqi insurgents moved around at night placing mortars and if they miss... All they had to do was move them a little bit closer to the target the next time. On October 26, Zach's friend Boz was in a Humvee parked side by side with another vehicle taking a break from their patrol. When a mortar struck the ground between the two vehicles, two of the soldiers received shrapnel injuries. Boz was hit by a small piece of shrapnel directly to the heart. Boz's premonition about her own death had finally come true. She was the first female military police officer to die in combat in Iraq. It was also just a few weeks before she would have turned 20. Boz's death hit Zach hard. They had grown close with their creative endeavors together back in Germany. Their friendship had only gotten stronger while they were deployed, and prior to her death, Zach was already in a deep depression. Zach's stress was evident. First, Lana's illness and the army's refusal to allow him to be with her. Then the soldiers who had been injured. Then, Baz dying. Zach was almost unrecognizable at this point. His friends would later recall that he looked different. He was completely changed. He was defeated. And this is where I will leave you today. There is so much to this story. I wanted to provide you all of this background information because it really does inform the rest of this case. Maybe by seeing everything that Zach went through, we can see a tiny glimpse into a moment when someone just snaps. Or maybe it's something else. If you're anything like me and you cannot wait a week to listen to part two, check out the fan club today where part two is available right away. Additionally, you not only get part two, but you also get at least 13 full bonus episodes available right away. If you sign up at a higher tier, you can get anywhere from 17 to 24-ish bonus episodes. Now that's a lot of bonus content. And since I've been gone for so long, I know that y'all need to binge. If you're into social media, make sure that you follow the show at Military Murder Podcast. And the Facebook group can be found at facebook.com groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and higher fan club members. The show's executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole G, Alicia H, Tina S and Ryan R. Thank you all so much for your continued support. The music was created by Taiops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this story next week.
1: Podcast. I told y'all she was bringing all the details. To listen to part two, head on over to Military Murder, episode 89, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. I'll be sure to drop a link in the show notes. New episodes of Military Murder drop every other Monday. And if that's not enough, you can join the Patreon for bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, challenge coins, and more. Huge shout out to Margo once again for sharing this episode with all of us. I'll be back next week with an all new episode and I can't wait. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.